afternoon. My name is Amadou Kabinian So, and I'm a PhD candidate in law at Bucerus Law School in Hamburg. My talk is entitled How to Orient Oneself in White Jurisprudence of Universality, Race, and the Law. Do excuse my reading from the page. It is a time-honored German tradition after all. I don't know whether anybody told you this or not, but when you are in a college English class, you're basically studying a foreign dialect. In class, in my English class, you will have to master and write in standard written English, which we might just as well call standard white English, because it was developed by white people and is used by white people, especially educated, powerful white people. These are the words David Foster Wallace's fictional doppelganger uses to explain the pitfalls of language and race to a student of color, whom he calls bright and inquisitive as hell and deficient in what US higher education considers written English facility. Wallace has his fictional stand-in recount that, I quote, a couple of students I've said this stuff to were offended. One lodged an official complaint and that I've had more than one colleague profess to find my spiel racially insensitive. Perhaps you do too, end quote. Naturally, nowadays, we are appalled at the way Wallace phrases his advice. It's patronizing and decidedly politically incorrect. Still, my thesis will be that Wallace is more right than we initially think. Remedying racism will entail partaking in white structures, such as white language and white thought. Ultimately, that will be the subject of my exploration that follows. My talk consists of three parts. I begin by examining how our vocabulary, our language forms the extent of our world. In doing so, I will delineate a concept of whiteness as an abstract universality and explain how it pervades our language and thus our world. My interest here is in conceiving a counterpoint to whiteness that can both represent the lived realities of people of color and challenge whiteness on its own terms, on the terms of universality. Secondly, I will show how these theoretical concepts of white and non-white universality can help us reorient the law and thus gain a manifestly practical dimension. My thesis is that jurisprudence, or even more specifically, German so-called legal dogmatics can be used as a lever to affect legal change towards true universality. Lastly, I will illustrate the practical yields of my proposed changes to jurisprudence using the example of German police law. No thought is without perspective. When we think, we inevitably do so already being in the world. Pure thought, unencumbered by spatial, temporal, and individual contingencies is unattainable. In the past, philosophers in the Plato-Kant canon experienced this limit as a deficiency that ought to be overcome. Nowadays, we are much more inclined to accept and perhaps even utilize it. By assembling a patchwork of different perspectives, we realize that each perspective can reveal its own truth. These truths are shaped by language, by our vocabularies. As Richard Rorty put it, I quote, all human beings carry about a set of words which they employ to justify their actions, their beliefs, and their lives. They are the words in which we tell the story of our lives. These individual vocabularies can overlap 
and constitute a symbolic social order that is fundamentally an order of shared vocabulary. This common symbolic order is the edifice of interpretation. Its brickwork is language. Now let's interpret Wallace's essay from this vantage point. For people of color, in Wallace's case, black Americans, the edifice of language they find themselves in, the social order it constructs is not entirely their own. Or more precisely, people of color inhabit two different worlds, one of their own, which has no claim to universal hegemony, and one of another's making, which has a strong claim to universal hegemony. From a person of color's point of view, both worlds are particular ones, the POC world as well as the white world. In both worlds, their lived experience means something to them. Yet in one world, they're being habitually exposed to a hegemonic language, a grammar of suffering that affects their whole socio-symbolic being. As Fanon puts it in a famous passage, I came into this world anxious to uncover the meaning of things. My soul desirous to be at the origin of the world. And here I am, an object among other objects. From the white perspective, that relation is a drastically different one. The white person's lived experience is one of universality. Her language and her world are very much her own. So much so that its contingency becomes invisible to her. That is what I mean when I refer to something as white. Whiteness is a standpoint that claims universality and neutrality for itself without necessarily doing so consciously. It simply takes up the mantle of normalcy. As a result, it is invisible and unmarked. It is, as Sarah Ahmed puts it, the absent center against which others appear only as deviants or points of deviation. Yet it's only invisible for those who inhabit it or those who get so used to its inhabitants that they learn not to see it, even when they are not it. That does not happen because white men plot the minutiae of their supremacy in smoke-filled back rooms. Still, where there is language, there are always processes at work that select and steer what can be said, what a vocabulary holds. In every society, the production of discourse is at once controlled, selected, organized, and redistributed by certain procedures. That includes procedures of inclusion and exclusion, of normalization and deviation. In Germany, whiteness is particularly reliant on its purported absence. It's an entirely implicit concept because for years there has been virtually no challenge of the conception that being German and being white belong together. Or more historically precise, after 1945, race as a category was systematically excluded from public debate. In retrospect, it seemed to us Germans as if the reality of race only seemed to enter German society with the rise of Nazism and then vanished along with it. This idea of the Stunde Null, the zero hour after World War II, allowed us to ignore our role in the Atlantic slave trade, colonialism, imperialism, and so on and so forth. In consequence, Germany has long struggled to admit to the fact that a multitude of different groups now inhabit its borders. An example of that struggle can of course be found in language. The initial word Germans used for migrants in the 70s was Gastarbeiter, guest workers that were expected to return to their homeland once their work was done. 
Now, one may feel differently about that situation. Some may understandably long for the imagined simplicity of all the times where such a plurality was not yet present, but its facticity cannot be denied. Only recently, and here the American Black Lives Matter protests have played a pivotal role, has the state of German consciousness become more open to its excluded other. However, the German gaze across the pond can be a strange one. It's regularly bound up in a false dichotomy between either proclaiming the German situation to be the precise copy of the American one or the total inverse. In the case of Black Lives Matter, that means that Germans tend to either look at our political order as fundamentally racist, as the US order probably is, or that they imagine themselves in a blissful post-racial enlightened Germany. The truth is naturally somewhere in between. Hence, even as white society sensitizes itself to the plight of this other, it does so from its own standpoint. Whiteness remains as the universal neutral medium, the place from which the truth about the other's oppression is accessed. Now there's an evident danger in raising the attribute of whiteness. It lies in turning whiteness into what philosophers call a hypostatic abstraction. That means turning what is merely a name for a social construct into an unchanging fact of being. If we were to do so, it would bring us to a conception that bears a frightening resemblance to the very racism we try to do away with. As the philosopher Zahi Zalua puts it, it would lead us into the very racist fantasies that teach us to see the social world as always already racially classified, locking individuals into their unconscious patterns of judgment and behavior encouraging and ensuring toxic relationality with racialized others. Instead, he says, any anti-racist discourse must strive not to naturalize or ontologize race and thereby perpetuate that which it seeks to contest. Zalur reminds us that to do so, not only do we need to change the way we conceptualize racism, we also need to change the way we conceive anti-racism. To this end, he sketches a vision where people of color will leave behind their particular identity, assume being nothing, and formulate their own universality, different from the universality imposed by whiteness. What does Zalua mean by this counterintuitive appeal to universality? Did we not just portray whiteness as universality? Is not the counterpoint to whiteness then caught up between a particularity that has no bearing for universality and a universality that would threaten the particularity's potential for change. It seems we are stuck between a rock and a hard place. Zalur shows a way out of this conundrum by invoking none other than Slavoj Žižek. He leads us through the very term we had determined as the problem, universality. Žižek conceives of the difference between whiteness and its other, not as the former being universal and the latter being particular. Instead, starting from Hegelian dialectics, Zizek develops two different notions of universality, abstract universality and concrete universality. Abstract universality excludes rather than encompasses the contingency of the particular. Concrete universality, on the other hand, is never complete without including in itself the, sub the subjective position as the particular and contingent point from which universality is perceived. So not only is every universality haunted by a particular content that taints it, 
every particular position is also haunted by its implicit universality, which undermines it. Universality inscribes itself into a particular identity as its inability to fully become itself. I am a universal subject insofar as I cannot realize myself in my particular identity. This is why the modern universal subject is by the definition out of joint, lacking its proper place in the social edifice. That's even more so the case for people of color. Concrete universality, on the other hand, is the exception that is reconciled in the universal. It denotes, as Zizek says, the unity of the abstract universal with its constitu constitutive exception. Through this distinction, race as a category can be kept out of joint, open, less fixed, and away from identitarian investments. As Zalua puts it, race is different is not on the side of the particular content, but on the side of the universal. What is needed is a state where a properly universal dimension explodes from within a particular context and is directly experienced as universal. The non-white marks the symptomatic point of universality. Although it belongs to its field, it undermines its universal principle. This non-identical excluded antithesis will strive towards synthesis as long as it remains excluded, never stopping until it reaches universality. For people of color, this is not idle theorizing. Our world is one where these sort of political thoughts and the personal world are intrinsically tied to one another. Being referred to purely as a particularity has its effects. Fanon described the psychopathology of race to make these effects apparent. Being habitually exposed to a hegemonic language affects your ontology, your socio-symbolic being. It deforms your subjectivity and blinds you to any claim to universality. One that, in my opinion, we need to put forward all the more strongly. Now, what does law have to do with all this? Why look at a specific German version of jurisprudence when talking about race? My thesis here is that the universalism of whiteness and the universalism of the law are analogous. The fact of law's medium being language might be raised against that. The text of written law, the judgments of courts, and the musings of tenured professors all of them rely on contingent vocabularies as their medium. Yet law is one of the remaining institutions of our society that still needs to affirm its independence of such contingencies, even in the face of overwhelming proof to the contrary. The law is caught up in a difficult in-between where simple historical facts attest to its historicity. Laws can and usually will be changed or abolished at some point. Still, law needs to symbolically reaffirm and demonstrate its eternity. It does so by laying claim to universality. This claim is deeply enmeshed in the same abstract universality of whiteness I spoke about earlier. Jurisprudence, i.e. the discipline of law, plays a particularly important role in the construction of this abstract universality of law. This is even more so the case for the particular German version of jurisprudence that is called Rechtsdogmatik, legal dogmatics. Legal dogmatics is a discipline that attempts to put order to law. Its function is to guide the practice of law. To do so, it conceives categories, differentiations, figures, or principles. 
It's commonly described as a reservoir of knowledge for both jurisprudence and law in action. It's highly inert and slow to take up change. In that sense, dogmatics is structurally conservative. It's bound to social expectancies that are in turn reproduced and fortified by the legal system. We can already see that dogmatics is a quintessentially German project that confides in the powers of order and rationality. Nonetheless, or maybe even because of that, it pervades the entirety of German speaking law. Regardless of where the law moves, dogmatics will have already moved there with it. Dogmatic discourse is the medium by which law realizes its claim to universality and neutrality. Under the dogmatic gaze, everybody and everything seem equal, equal parts of a universal law. Dogmatics thinks of itself, if it even thinks about itself, as purely descriptive and apolitical. In fact, it even needs to do so. Otherwise, some might question its squarely prescriptive influence that would suddenly be laid bare. This enthusiasm for objectivity and universality turns law into an almost ontological entity. Although dogmatics rarely raises the claim to providing the universal answer, its vocabulary guarantees that its predications about law are clothed in a veil of objectivity. It never attests to the validity of such claims, and perhaps it cannot, because doing so might destroy its ability to function. Through this perverted neutrality, dogmatics gains a lot of influence and power. One dimension that seldom is addressed, even in discussions critical of dogmatics, is this connection to whiteness, understandably so considering the lack of people of color in German legal thought. Evidently, the way I've just laid out legal dogmatics bears a striking similarity to the abstract universality of whiteness. Both hide their excluded particularity behind universality. Both affirm a certain status quo. Both are reinforced by a static vocabulary and both fundamentally structure reality. Now, a one-dimensional perspective would simply point out dogmatics whiteness as a negative, pseudo-political effect. It certainly does have its valid reasons for doing so. I, however, believe um, that it's more useful from a non-white perspective to simultaneously mount a critique and a defense of dogmatics. This also allows us to avoid the performative contradiction of critiquing law in its entirety and thus surrendering law's power. It's not about calling for its abolition or leaving it entirely untouched. Rather, it's about using dogmatics as a lever for the ends of concrete universality. In doing so, we can even measure up dogmatics against its own promise. As it is now, it remains behind its own possibilities. A truly universal dogmatics would encompass the non-white point of view. Again, not as a particularity, but as a point of concrete universality. That would mean a subversive change, not a critique that argues against dogmatics, but rather a critique that argues through dogmatics. Thus, we turn critique itself on its head, where before we've regretted that any critique that aims to challenge is weakened by the fact of its participation in the object of critique, we now cherish that aspect and see it as an opportunity. Here again, I, I quote the Lua, the critical inventiveness we need lies not beyond the European legacy, but through it. A more effective blow to white supremacy is to deprive the whites of the monopoly on defining their own tradition. 
concrete universality appropriates key elements of the white egalitarian tradition, redefines that very tradition and transforms it, obliterating the implicit qualifications which have excluded people of color from the egalitarian space. Now, in the concluding portion of this talk, I will gesture towards one area of legal thought and practice where a non-white dogmatics could prove useful and, and fruitful, police law. The German philosophers Vogel and Wolf have recently explored the role of angst for our modern societies, specifically for their policies and laws. They posit that angst has become the modern a priori of politics. The German language knows two different words that are both encompassed by the English word fear. The etymologically close word Furcht denotes a fear that has a very tangible object, i.e. a fear that has good reason. We might think of a pursuer we've already glimpsed stalking us through the dark of night. Angst, on the other hand, lexically still present in English words like anguish or anxiety, describes a fear without a clear object and source. Angst cannot be contested. It cannot be disproven. That's its very definition. When somebody tells you he feels angst, you cannot deny that subjective feeling. Angst is always authentic. That is where Vogel and Wolf see its frightening potential as a legitimizing force of state authority. In what they call a politics of angst, the anticipation of potential danger grows boundless. The spellbound concentration on uncertain danger renders the uncertainty of danger even more frightening. Addressing this pervasive angst replicates it. By trying to remedy it through security measures, angst is validated. The heightened perception of dangers and the desire for security are contingent on one another. Transplanted into law, this process is inherently excessive. Law's field of suspicion extends itself to no end. That is, by the way, perhaps an inherent property of law. It continually strives to usurp more parts of its outside. Now, these were fairly abstract thoughts. However, in Germany, the consequences of such a politics of angst can already be observed. The police's power are being broadened beyond their former scope. Where German police laws used to have restrictive requirements for allowing preventive measures, these restrictions are generally being eased. The way this is done, and I will not bore you with the nitty gritty of German police law here, is through German law's conception of danger. Danger is the central concept in German police law. It's the general requirement for police to enact preventive measures. Yet the way dogmatics nowadays determines whether such an inherently uncertain thing as danger is at hand is through the officer's subjective point of view. This subjectivation is a fairly recent shift that has accelerated in the last two decades. It means that the authorization of an officer to act under the uncertainty of danger rests to a sizable extent on him or herself. Conceptions of angst and imagery of sinister migrants always ready to commit minor or major crimes against proper society inevitably shape the way officers will conduct themselves here. And that is entirely independent of the particular officer's race. Still, we would not stop here in decrying this process as an authorization for racial profiling or police brutality against migrants or people of color. Rather, we should point out where the specific conception of subjective danger undermines police law's own promises of security 
and order under a pervasive politics of angst. We can formulate the, univers the, the universal dimension only if we focus on a particular case which exemplifies it. Here we can observe how if we integrate the non-white into legal dogmatics, we might be able to affect general substantive change through law, from the comfortable chairs of our ivory towers, one might add. Now to conclude, let me refer back to the title of this talk, how to orient oneself in white jurisprudence. We might ask, have we now learned how to do so? The faithful Kantians among you may have already recognized my title as a corruption of Kant's lesser known essay, How to Orient Oneself in Thought. In it, Kant asks how an orientation in judgment can be gained for which no intuition is possible. His question arises because of the need to connect the realms of thought and practice, even when dealing with the conceptually unknowable. He solves it in a typically Kantian way by putting the subject at the center. Orientation in the dark is provided by a feeling of difference in my own subject. But whilst Kant goes on to universalize the particular subjectivities into an intersubjective universality, we should by now have realized that we need to orient universality towards us. We need to undo the reflexivity Kant as the first German, by the way, gave the word to orient and turn it back into the transitive active verb it used to be. Hence, at the end of this talk, we arrive at a slight modification of its title that represents the effort to give back universal agency to people of color. It should now say how to orient white jurisprudence. Thank you very much. <laughs>